Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what are the chances the federal liberals may call a snap election in the near future? We talked with Peter Gray from McMaster University about that. David Aiken, chief political correspondent with Global News, also joined the program to talk about the We Charity scandal that seems to be brewing in Ottawa. And will the kids be all right when they head back to school next year? Professor Tracy Viancourt says, yeah, she joins us on the program to give us the details. And down in the States, several members of Congress are calling on the Canada-U.S. governments to reopen the border. Not such a good idea. We'll talk about that on the program. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, uh, with the economic uh, snapshot that uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau presented earlier this week up in Ottawa, uh, there's a great deal of speculation about what's going to be happening, not just from a financial standpoint, but even from a political standpoint. Uh, Mr. Morneau and, and the Prime Minister, uh, just after uh, Mr. Morneau made his presentation, uh, were defensive about, uh, about government's actions so far and said, look, it, uh, it's a big number and this could have been, it is bad, but you know what, it could have been worse if we didn't do anything. Here's what the minister had to say. Some will criticize us on the cost of action. They'll point to the size of our deficit in 2021. It's a testament of the shock that COVID-19 had on our economy. But our government knew that the cost of inaction would have been far greater. Those who would have us do less ignore that without government action, millions of jobs would have been lost. Well, more than a couple of pundits have speculated that the reason this statement came out now, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the opposition party has been asking for some information on this, uh, this may actually be setting the scene for a snap election. Now, this is a story that's been going around off and on for about the last three months uh, during COVID because of the uh, increased popularity of the Liberal government. The Trudeau government seems to be enjoying these days. I'm not so sure that, uh, that that's going to be maintained for any length of time. So do they strike while the iron is hot? Let's ask Peter Grafe. Peter, of course, is a professor in political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Uh, Peter, good morning, first of all. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you on the show today. My pleasure. Uh, calling snap elections anytime by any government is usually a pretty risky business. It is, it, do you think it's, it's, it's front and center here? Do you think these guys are actually seriously considering doing something like this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you're in a minority government situation, you're always looking to say, well, if we went now, um, you know, would things go well, especially with the sky-high approval ratings that they have? Uh, we also had a poll from uh, Leger that came out last week, which showed the, the Conservatives, uh, you know, at a very low level. Uh, you know, even in their heartlands, they were losing, uh, they were losing support. Um, so, you know, in that context, uh, I would presume the people around Trudeau would be saying, well, could we have an election now? Because uh, the result uh, might be quite interesting. It's an interesting uh, scenario, simply because of uh, not just the popularity, as you mentioned, of the Liberal Party, but the Conservative Party, who obviously would be the number one challenger, you would think, anyway, uh, seem to be in really disarray. You're right. I mean, th- this is a-, a party right now that seems to have an identity crisis. That obviously, we don't know who the new leader is going to be. It looks like it might be Peter McKay, but you don't know that for sure. I mean, last time they did one of these leadership races, everybody thought Maxine Bernier was a shoe-in, and that didn't happen. So if 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 you got your you know the the opposition is in in bad shape like this, uh, that's got to be awfully tempting for the liberals to say just let's go now. Yeah, I mean I think you know so there's a temptation to go, and then I guess the other side uh, on the other shoulder, right, uh, whispering in the ear is the argument that well if you go when the conservatives don't have a leader, you know there's a danger that uh, they'll be seen as being unfair to them. Why can't you wait the extra month for them to have them? Uh, you know, another little voice saying, well, wait a second, a new leader usually gets a bump. And so it may be, uh, you know, maybe they'd be in disarray having just gone through a leadership race, but we haven't really had a chance to frame up why 
uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay is not, you know, the, the leader for Canada. And I guess the third thing whispering in the ear is, like, will, will Canadians punish uh, a government for going to an election that really doesn't seem to be needed? We had one last fall. So how do you make the case that you need one in a context where Canadians in many ways are saying, well, we actually haven't minded the past four months where our politicians have acted more like grown-ups. Uh, you know, they've, they've criticized each other, but uh, there's been less of the kind of pointless name-calling you know, and they're working to confront a pretty important thing that's worrying us, which is this whole COVID situation. So, I mean, I think that's the, 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 the case against the election that presumably the liberal strategists are also talking about, is that there might be a lot of uh, skepticism. Or, uh, you know, on the one hand, there's been a growth of uh, popularity of Trudeau as he's dealt with the crisis, but in part because he's engaged as a statesman. But if he comes back and looks like a uh, opportunistic politician, uh, will people's dismay at that be so great that he's punished in a significant manner? That does happen. I mean, I, and we always talk about that. And I guess the example that more often than not we, we talk about in a situation like that, Peter, is uh, the David Peterson government here in Ontario back in the early 1990s, uh, who'd called an election long before he probably should have, looking, I guess, to solidify uh, you know his status. And, and of course, he got punched. I mean, they, they were ended up defeated. Bob Ray won, won that election, of course, in the NDP formed government here. But uh, it, it does, I guess, indicate that, uh, that voters do pay attention, and uh, if they don't think it's the right time or the right situation to call this, uh, they'll take it out on a political party, won't they? Yeah, I think so. Uh, or at least it leaves that party vulnerable. And I think with this economic update, uh, I think you see even within the Liberal Party uh, some difficulty knowing how you'd go to, uh, go to the public. Because on the one hand, you have the argument that Morneau presented in the clip uh, you played, which was really about... Uh, you know, which is playing to the, the voter who might vote conservative, who might vote liberal, and is to say, yeah, we, we took on these big deficits, but we had to do it. It saved jobs in the economy. Uh, but there's another wing of the Liberal Party that might be saying, well, you know, we, we didn't have enough money for a social housing program before this crisis, and then suddenly we found $340 billion, and we're able to pay for it at really low rates of interest. So how come all these other things that were important to us as liberal voters supporting that government, but which always got put off to another day, haven't happened? So on that flank, you know, the liberals uh, are a bit uh, vulnerable to the NDP. So if they went into an election, I think they'd have a tough decision to make. Do they try and save the liberal conservative voters who are worried about the size of the deficits, or do they try and get those liberal NDP voters who might be saying, well, if we have this capacity to do things together, we have the fiscal capacity why aren't we using it to actually achieve the things that were in our uh, past two electoral pro, uh, platforms? Peter, what about the NDP in situations like that? And I know we're playing what if, but I mean, if they do follow this scenario uh, and say, okay, let's let's do this, let's have an election, uh, where did the NDP stand on this right now? Uh, with uh, Jagmeet Singh has had some time now as a leader, a, a rather high-profile leader for that matter. Uh, do they have do they have a, a foundation? Do they can they build on what they've done over the last couple of months? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the question whether they have the sort of financial means to fight a campaign might be a bigger mm -hmm. one. But, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they're able uh, to point to things they did in the minority government, uh, although whether Canadians actually agree with their argument that it was the NDP that made them happen around, you know, the, the Serb and the extension of the Serb, uh, you know, those kinds of questions I think they could point to. Uh, they could also point to the unkept promise about doing something for Canadians with disabilities. So, I think there's a way in which they could uh, frame up that question. On the other hand, I think they've also, uh, Mr. Singh's uh, confrontation with the Bloc Québécois, I think has also given him a, a bump in the polls. So I think there would also be space uh, for the NDP to try and deal with the sense that maybe this Liberal government hasn't been moving quickly enough 
around some questions of kind of racial justice and policing. So, you know, between the two of those, I think the NDP would be in a position where it would likely do as well as it did last time and have a chance for growth. What about Quebec? Let's talk a little bit about that, because it's always a pivotal area in any election, if in fact there's going to be one. Uh, and, you know, we talk about the NDP's growth in Quebec, and of course that kind of dissipated considerably uh, after Jack Layton passed away, uh, much to the angst, I guess, of, of Tom Mulcair. Uh, the Conservatives are having some trouble getting some foundations in Quebec as well. Where are they right now, and, and which way would a province like Quebec go if, in fact, we were going to have an election? Well, I think it would remain a wild card. I mean, you're right, the conservative levels of support are, uh, you know, lower than they were even at the last election. Uh, this leadership race of two candidates who really don't seem to have a great command of French and for whom it doesn't seem to be a great priority haven't done a lot to convince conservative Quebecers that the conservative party is uh, the place for them. So, I, you know, if we were to have an election today, I think it would be pretty strongly between uh, the Liberals and the Bloc. Uh, and probably would get a result not much unlike the one we got uh, a year ago in the election. I mean, I think you can see that in the block, even when this uh, me-to-we thing comes up. Uh, uh, you know, we saw Blanchet asking that uh, Trudeau, demanding that Trudeau step down and Freeland uh, replace him until the situation was kind of made clear. You know, again, that seems to me an indication that the bloc, you know, wants to punish the liberals, but they don't really want an election, right? They aren't calling uh, for the immediate fall of the government, in part because I think they, their feeling is the best they could do in an election would be a repeat of a year ago. And there might be a chance that either the conservatives or the NDP catch fire. You know, if people were, were fed up of just, you know, another election, you know, not still the bloc, you know, maybe there'd be space for either the NDP or the conservatives to come back. And, and then you have to wonder about Ontario, and I guess one of the, the subplots of, of the last federal election uh, was the uh, almost urban-rural split within uh, the Conservative Party. But just seemed as if in big cities, people just were not enamored with uh, with uh, Andrew Scheer and what the Conservatives were offering in a situation like that. Has that changed at all? Uh, at the moment, I don't think so. I mean, you know, the, the 905, where they would need to make gains and where they, they went down a bit last time, there's a lot of people who realize that their jobs evaporated overnight and they needed the government to help them. And so when a conservative government comes out and says, well, they're lazy or they don't have work incentives, uh, I don't think that really uh, works for them. I think the opening does come around this question of uh, kind of the fiscal capacity. And so there, right, if the conservatives are effective in making it seem like Canada can't afford this or that the liberal government spent indiscriminately, uh, there's a kind of a swing voter that might go back to the conservatives in that situation. But, uh, you know, again, on a number of other issues, uh, you know, around the environment, uh, carbon tax, uh, firearms, you know, there's a number of issues where in this conservative leadership race we see, you know, a same a discourse, uh, one that I don't think actually works well with the conservative voter in the, the suburbs of the GTA who don't want guns. They want, you know, security and law and order, uh, you know, and, and aren't really looking you know, want to do something around the environment rather than doing nothing. And so on those things, it's hard to see the Conservatives having a lot of growth. One of the other areas that uh, that I looked at, Peter, that, that I think probably is on the other side of the ledger here that says, no, there's probably no way they're going to do this, uh, it's summertime. I, we, as voters, don't tend to like having elections in the summertime, do we? I mean, we're busy doing other things, especially this year. You know, we've been so heavily focused on COVID and the results of that, and we're, we're looking for escapism here right now. I don't know if people really want to roll up their sleeves and get involved in an election campaign during uh, July or August. No, I, I would agree. <laughs> I'd agree. I think, you know, it's part of that. People would be saying why. Uh, we did this a year ago. 
um, you know, if the Conservatives had been very effective in showing that somehow the Liberal government was uh, acting in a way that was inconsistent with what Canadians wanted over the past, you know, in, the, in terms of managing this COVID crisis, or that they'd been completely irresponsible with the finances, you know, then, you know, the, the Liberals might be able to say, well, we need an election to sort out whether they're right or we're right. But uh, I, don't, I don't think our politics has taken us to that point. So it would seem, I think, pretty artificial and opportunistic uh, if they were to go to the polls now. Yeah, if the argument's going to be, listen, we need a stronger mandate because we've got a lot of heavy work to do here because of the deficit and because of COVID, uh, I would think the answer that probably voters are going to say is you already got a mandate, um, and you've been doing what we think is a pretty decent job so far, so so why bother? Why why, why change? I, I, I don't know that there's much validity to even making that argument at this stage. Uh, yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I, I guess we did have a situation with Stephen Harper in about uh, 2008 where he made the case that, he couldn't make Parliament work. Nothing could work through Parliament, even though it seemed that Parliament was working reasonably well. And he went to the, you know, he went to the the public, and he did fine in that election. Um, so it may be that once you're in an election, people forget sooner than you think about who caused it. But I think, given the the particular nature of the situation, which is, I think, a, a big reason why the Trudeau government is so popular and why uh, Trudeau himself has been so popular in recent polls, you know, is based on a kind of a trust in his political leadership to get us safely through a difficult situation. And so, again, when that moves to opportunism, I think the punishment would be much greater than in normal political times. Yeah, that was an interesting uh, scenario, the, the Harper times, because he basically tried to paint a, a picture of a, a, what he called a constitutional crisis, uh, because uh, Stefan Dion and, and, and Jack Layton and Gilles Duceppe at that time, basically were going to, well, he, I, I, to use their characterization, almost it was a palace coup. They were going to take over the government because it was a minority situation. Uh, and uh, I guess a lot of people bought into that argument. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'd say the political scientists didn't buy that argument, <laughs> but uh, I think certainly in the public, the conservatives were effective in, in making the argument that somehow the normal workings of our parliament were uh, equivalent to a coup. Well, yeah, uh, and, and and the characterization that it was what they were doing was illegal, and it wasn't. And I think you and I talked about that at the time, that it's well within the constitutional rights of a, of a political party in a minority situation to to say, hey, we can form a government and these guys can't. I mean, and Harper's accusation then the parliament wasn't working. He didn't want it to work. I mean, that's really what it came down to. But, uh, again, weak leadership, uh, you know, from uh, Dion at that particular time, Stefan Dion probably was the, the deciding factor in that. So I... I, I just notwithstanding what I'm seeing on social media and, and, and some of the, the rumblings we're hearing out of Ottawa, I'd be very, very surprised if the Prime Minister decided to take a leap uh, and decide to go to the polls in a situation like that. But just you mentioned one other thing that I wanted to get your perspective on. Uh, we are going to talk about this a little bit in a couple of minutes here, the We Charity situation that's going on here, which seems to be evolving. There seems to be a new element to it almost every day. Uh, and some people are trying to draw a parallel between this and, and of course, the, the other scandal that happened in the last election, of course, uh, with the financial scandal about uh, the, the Prime Minister getting involved in judicial decisions and situations like that. Does, is this thing going to stick with him, or is this a, a summertime thing that people aren't paying much attention to? Uh, well, I think it's a summertime thing that people aren't paying much attention to, but, you know, a bit with uh, similarly with uh, Stephen Harper, where, you know, each case of kind of secret uh, dealings or trying to limit uh, oversight in terms of what the government was doing, I don't think harmed him that much. Uh, but over time, it became a bit of the sense that this was a closed government or a government that was, you know, hiding from the public eyes. And I think in Trudeau's case, there's this idea of him being just a bit too close with his friends, not following the proper procedures, and, you know, and feeling that if he decides something is right, it should be done 
you know, regardless of, of what the rules are. And so, yeah, I think in that sense, you know, it, it feeds that narrative. And so uh, it's probably not going to be a big thing that lasts. There will be a bit this summer. There will be a bit when the ethics commissioner's report comes out. But again, I think it, it builds on the kind of what wears down a government over the years. And in particularly in Ontario, there's some uh, echoes maybe with the Wynn government, the Wynn-McGuinty governments. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, yeah, it makes it harder for the Liberals to win the seats in the GTA that they want because those voters begin to say, hmm, you know, whether we like what the Liberals have done or not, uh, we find that they're getting a bit too comfortable with power. Peter Grafe uh, from McMaster University and Political Science Department. As always, Peter, thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. All right, thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What's going on with the We Charity situation over the last little while? You may remember that uh, when the government announced this uh, student assistance program, uh, they also announced that the We Charity was going to be delivering that program for them. Uh, There was no competition for it, no bidding as to who was going to do that. Uh, and uh, that's great, a great deal of angst, so much so that, of course, the we people actually backed off and said we're not going to get involved in it anymore. But uh, it hasn't gone away. Uh, notwithstanding all of the pressure that he's been feeling, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is uh, still still justifying what he said. Here's what he had to say this earlier this week. Well, we are going to be moving forward with government itself delivering directly these grants. Certainly there are certain things that we will not be able to do uh, as government delivers this program directly. Uh, reaching out to uh, actively search and pull in volunteers was something that the WE organization could do because of its extensive network and practice, as well as support in training and onboarding volunteers uh, so that smaller organizations, for example, could ensure that we're giving the best possible experience uh, to Canadians. Uh, that was something that we was ready to do, that government isn't necessarily uh, best positioned to do. But we're going to continue to work uh, with uh, partners across the country and within government to make sure that these young people who've been stepping up right across the country at a time of COVID, but year in, year out, to try and contribute to the well-being of their community and their country, continue to get those opportunities to make a difference in their communities. Yeah, but, uh, thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, but the concern here, of course, is that there seem to be some pretty strong ties between uh, the Trudeau family and, and the WE uh, charity. Uh, his his wife, of course, is a, a goodwill ambassador. Uh, apparently, we're told she's been compensated. Her uh, The Prime Minister's mom, Margaret Trudeau, has always uh, been a part of this as well and, and apparently has received compensation for some of the appearances she's made. So it's a story that doesn't seem to be going away, and there seems to be an add-on to it almost every day now. I want to bring David Aiken into the conversation. David, of course, is the chief political correspondent for Global News, uh, centered in Ottawa. David, great to have you back in the program. How are you keeping these days? I'm hot like everybody else, Bill. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep cool. Well, uh, things are getting pretty hot with the prime minister and his family right now. The the latest revelation, of course, as you guys reported uh, yesterday, is that uh, both uh, Margaret Trudeau and uh, and the prime minister's brother, uh, Sasha, uh, have been compensated and work with this organization, uh, which is, really is, is muddying the waters now when it comes to exactly what kind of a relationship the Prime Minister has with this group. Yeah, so let's sort of sort of recap. So the, 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 the Trudeau government at one point uh, thinks up a program, uh, which uh, it, it sounds like a valuable sort of program, in which it will try to find uh, placements for 35,000 students, university students, college students, try and find placements in the voluntary charitable sector uh, for students to get work experience uh, and, uh, and life experience, I suppose, do some good. And uh, if, if those students went through this program, then they would receive 
you know, a few thousand bucks in cash, sort of an honorarium, and uh, that could be used to help pay for their tuition. The federal government may uh, help with tuition. So it sounded like a useful program. We know students are having trouble because real jobs are a little tougher to come by uh, in this time of pandemic, and yet there's always you know, plenty of volunteer work that's, you know, always needed in all sorts mm-hmm. of different organizations. So, okay, that sounds like a plan. Um, so who is going to match these students up with available positions? And as you just, as a, you just heard the Prime Minister explain, uh, he didn't think this was a job for government. But then he's figured, uh, oh, this is just a good job for the WE Charity. The WE Charity, just so everybody knows, this is a big organization. It's a global organization founded by Craig and Mark Kielberger. Remember Craig Kielberger that, you know, first came on the scene when he was about 12 years old, uh, mm-hmm. fighting for children's rights. So uh, the Kielbergers and the Trudeaus are pretty tight. Um, this organization, by the way, raises about $70 million a year. As I say, it's a big charity, and it does events around the world. I was once, once when I was covering one of Prime Minister Trudeau's visits to uh, Europe, uh, he headlined a WE event in Germany, filled a stadium of 18,000 kids, and he co-headlined with Coldplay, the band, which I understand is a pretty <laughs> popular band. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's the sort of thing they do. Now, for Trudeau, the Trudeaus, their association with these WE events, what do they get out of it? Well, it helps make the prime minister, you know, look like that hip uh, politician that can connect with young people. Uh, that seemed to be a good quid pro quo for him and didn't help the WE events at all because Trudeau is a bit of a draw among young people. So, you know, look good for the WE. But here's the thing that we learned yesterday about the connection between the Trudeaus, and you touched on this. Margaret Trudeau earned about $250,000. That's a lot of money for for anybody. Earned about $250,000 in speaking fees at WE events, and that was over a period of time, but includes the time when Trudeau was prime minister. His brother Alexander also several thousand dollars in speaking fees, also paid while the prime minister was, uh, while Justin Trudeau was the prime minister. Sophie, that's of course PM's wife, she got $1,400 for an event in 2012. So that was before Trudeau was PM. Um, but, uh, you know, Sophie has been still very active at WE events, and we're looking into what sort of travel assistance Sophie received from the WE organization when she went this spring to an event in London uh, with her kids, and that was the event at which she, she may have contracted the, the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, that's uh, well, she was with Idris Alba and, and a number of others, and they were all positive after that, uh, that conference. Yeah, you got it. Um, so there's that tie. And then this contract as well. Not only does I mention, you know, that, okay, I'll, I'll just give this contract to, to the WE folks. It was sole-sourced, so there was no competition. Cabinet apparently considered the deal, so it was put before Cabinet. You can't even, – even a prime minister in Canada they cannot hand out a $900 million contract without um, a uh, Cabinet decision. So Cabinet considered it. Um, and the Prime Minister did not recuse himself from the discussion, despite these ties his family has to it. The Prime Minister did not recuse himself from the discussion, did not apologize for that either when we asked him about that this week. And then uh, we got the deal. What does we get out of that? This $900 million goes to we for them to distribute to students. So they're taking in $900 million, they're supposed to hand out the $900 million to students. But we would have been paid about $20 million for their effort. Um, which is, you know, no, that, that's pretty, pretty good for the WE organization, which oh, yeah. also, like a lot of other charities, is kind of down right now because it, it can't do fundraising because of the pandemic. So this, was, this looked like a lifeline to WE for it to save some staff because their buddy Justin Trudeau was going to give it a, basically a $20 million contract. End of the thing, you're right, the deal became too hot to handle for 
uh, we certainly, but almost everyone involved, and we said it withdrew. Uh, the Prime Minister said it was a mutual decision, but right now we're back to the government trying to figure out how to deliver this program for students. Remember that, at the end of the day, we got 35 students kind of hoping for something here. Immense confusion right now. There's jobs on a federal government website that are being advertised that don't exist, um, and we're really not sure when the bureaucrats are going to have this program up and running. So uh, big mess for the prime minister, big mess for students, big mess for we. Exactly, and and I don't know if anybody's actually pointing the finger at we. I mean, it's, it's as you said, David, it, they've been around for a while now. It's a reputable organization. It's the, and, and by all intents and purposes, of course, and by all accounts, has done some pretty good work. The crux of this that that has bothered me, and I'm, I, I know you've talked about this when you're reporting, is the sole sourcing aspect of this. I mean, this sounds again, as you mentioned, not a bad program. I, that's a pretty good idea. Good thing for students to get a few bucks for towards their tuition and, and get some volunteer hours in. But you, you, as a government, you can't simply say, I'm going to give this to this company here without some sort of competitive bid process. And they didn't even seem to entertain that idea. Right. And, in fact, there has been some reporting that our friends at the Globe Mail did uh, looking at, what, uh, trying to ask the question, was, in fact, we the only organization in Canada that could have delivered this program? And, remember, their function would have been matching up students to vacancies and volunteer groups. And the Globe Mail's reporting on this. They talked to a lot of people in the charitable sector, other organizations who probably could have done this, who all said, not really. We is not really, we've never done anything like this before. Uh, the WE organization doesn't have a network in Canada uh, to be able to, you know, call up this charity, that charity, and whatever. It just, it, it, that's not the way that the WE charity operates. It's a different kind of operation. It's more global and international focused than national focused. And so, again, according to Globe's reporting, there was a lot of charities that were putting their hand up saying, um, we, we could have done this program. In fact, we probably could have done a better job faster. So the WE program, when they first started, we, we was having to establish a network, essentially, among other charities here in Canada, whereas there are existing charities in Canada already have that network. So, again, this goes to, I guess, the Prime Minister's judgment. And i got to tell you, it goes to Cabinet's judgment. And now there are some serious questions for the members of the cabinet who are supposed to be stewards of the public purse. Did they know, did cabinet members know about the connection between, the financial connection between the Trudeau family and we when they basically rubber stamp the prime minister's decision to sole source this contract? Because then that puts into question, uh, you know, Christopher Freeland's uh, judgment, Bill Morneau's judgment, Mark Garneau's judgment, you name it. Did don't nobody in that cabinet stand up to the PM and say, do you really think this is a good idea, sir? And where was his own staff and lawyers in the PMO to say, There's a, you don't see the problem in this one, PM? And this is not the first time this has happened, Bill. When I say first time, we've got an ethics investigation again, this is the third ethics investigation of Justin Trudeau's behavior while he's been prime minister. And, it, and the, it, the, the common denominator in each one is no one around Justin Trudeau stands up to say, buddy, there, there's rules, and you've got to follow them. And he's been found twice to have broken rules, and he's up a third time. And I'm not, I can't see how he's not going to be found that he's once again violated Canada's ethics laws. And that's the, the, the crux of this thing. Where are the checks and balances in a situation like this? And, and again, you're right, David, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but did anybody say, you know, uh, do you want to think this over before we go ahead and do something like this? Even even if there was no association between the Trudeaus and, and we, the fact that they're sole sourcing this should have caused some angst, I would think, of, uh, around that cabinet table, but we haven't heard of it. We, nobody seems to be owning up to it. 
Uh, that's right. And, and sole sourcing is, uh, you know, it's an appropriate way to procure something if you're darn sure that you know there's nothing else. I think and the ones, the, in all my years here in Ottawa, the single biggest successful sole sourcing contract uh, was the Harper government. In its early days, it had committed to purchase and, and modernize our Air Force with uh, what's called uh, you know, strategic airlift, long-distance long airlift. And we went to Boeing and bought four C-17s. And, uh, and other air, air manufacturers tried to claim foul. Oh, we, can, we got something that can help you move stuff around the world. But it turns out there really isn't anything that matches the C-17 to get, say, a tank from uh, Edmonton to Afghanistan. And so, uh, so we bought four C-17s, and we got them at a good price. Uh, the government was clear on why it was doing the sole source contract. It was all transparent above board. No one in the government had any financial connections to Boeing. Uh, that's kind of an important point, too. And, uh, and the government successfully negotiated a significant sort of, uh, 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 sort of domestic industry support from Boeing. So that is about the only one that I know of that worked well for a sole source contract. Often they end up not working well because there is a competitor out there that puts her hand up after the fact to say, yo, uh, we could have done that contract, why didn't we bid? And uh, in this case, yes, there were some charities that could could have done this work. And in fact, they say they could have done it better than we. And, and they're in, you know, the, 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 the statement that the prime minister made when, when all of a sudden, you know, uh, this, this thing started to come to everybody's attention was that this is the only organization he knew of that could do this. But as you've reported, they don't even do it. We does not do this sort of thing. So uh, it, it, it just, it smacks right now of favoritism in a situation like this. And, uh, there's a number of questions. I mean, where's the program now? Is the government going to try to do this program themselves now? Is, is that what's going to happen? Uh, yeah, we we don't know, and that is uh, that is actually that's that's one of the tasks I'm I'm going to pursue today is trying to get a sense of where this program stands. Again, um, you know, I'm obviously interested in the politics of this. I'm a political reporter, but we're also interested in the 35,000 students who may have mm-hmm. been saying, "Oh, this is going to help me out." I've been at home. I'm trying to figure out something to do that can you know look good on my resume and maybe put a couple of bucks in my pocket. This sounds like a great program. Wh- when's it going to start? No idea. And that's, uh, that's, that's a real shame of it, too. Uh, Mr. Dion has said that uh, he is going to be uh, investigating once again, as you say, for the third time. And there's a great political cartoon. It was in one of the Ottawa papers, wasn't it, David? It uh, looked like uh, the Prime Minister going to the principal's office. and the, 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 Obviously, it's Mr. Dion, and they're saying, you again? Uh, you know, a problem child sort of a situation. Uh, any ideas to how long this is going to take to investigate and when the, uh, he, the Ethics Commissioner might actually issue a report on this? No, and, and Dion is uh, Dion is relatively new. I guess he's probably a couple of years in. Um, in the just to recap, you know, greatest hits of Trudeau's ethics violations. The first one was that famous Christmas trip to the Aga Khan's island in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a free trip uh, to his uh, to the Aga Khan. That one took about gosh, it uh, took about a year and a half uh, to, uh, to to get done. Um, then there was the investigation into, you know, what or what he did or didn't say to Jody Wilson-Raybould over the SNC-Lavalin issue. That was Dion's report, and, uh, you know, it was, it was back within six, eight months. So we'll see. Um, you know, it's, uh, Mr. Dion will want to interview the various participants in this. Uh, they're all in town. Uh, you know, it's not like the Aga Khan where some people were out of the country. Uh, he should, seems to me, be able to sort of, you know, maybe uh, wrap this up sometime, hopefully by the fall. Well, we'll be watching for your reporting on this on Global National tonight and uh, in the days ahead. David, as always, thanks so much for this. Uh, Stay cool, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Okay, cheers.
Take care. David Aiken, of course, uh, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, and he'll have an update on that uh, tonight when uh, Global National comes on with Donna Friesen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Speaking of COVID-19 and the impact it is having on so many different facets of our lives, including education, there's a, a fabulous piece uh, that was written by uh, Tracy Vinecourt uh, called Academically Speaking, The Kids Are Going to Be Okay. And this, of course, is addressing some of the concerns that parents have about going back to school in September, if, in fact, they are going to be going back to school, to the bricks and mortar of school. Uh, because of the closure that happened late last year, of course, in the school year, there was an awful lot of pressure put on, on parents to try to pick up the slack with that education process. And there's some concerns about the quality of education with kids. Uh, so to that point, we're so pleased to welcome Tracy Viancourt back to the program, Ph.D. professor at Tier 1 Canada Research Chair at School-Based Mental Health and Violence Prevention, also the Faculty of Education at the University of Ottawa. Tracy, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the program today. Yes, hi, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about about what's happening with the education system right now. And, and like I say, I, I talked to an awful lot of parents who are, quite frankly, Tracy, are pretty stressed out because they say, look, I, I, I can't teach. I mean, I do what I can like this, but I'm worried about the quality of education that my kids are going to have as long as COVID is around right now. Is, is that a legitimate concern here? It, it is and it isn't. So this is what actually motivated me to write this with my colleagues is I've heard from so many parents. They're worried about a lot of things. Uh, this is just one piece of a larger, more complicated story. But they're worried about the quality of instruction that they were giving to their children at home and how it caused a lot of problems in terms of, you know, managing their relationship and the like. And the truth of the matter is, for most kids, uh, they're going to be okay academically. Like, parents could just give up teaching their, t- their children. Uh, we can, you know, pause for a little bit longer even. And I don't think that most kids are going to take a hit academically on this. Um, and I base that on research that shows that there's enormous resiliency with kids um, in terms of academic learning. Uh, there's no real sensitive period, so they don't have to learn, uh, you know, reading in grade one. And if they don't, you know, not, they're not destitute for life kind of thing. So that's kind of where this was coming from, was just trying to get give parents um, some breathing room and getting them to understand that, uh, you know, the expectation is it should no longer be that they're teaching their kids at home, even if we don't go back formally in September like we used to. Which is why I always enjoy talking with you and reading some of the stuff that you write, because you get you put this in perspective for us. And I'm glad you brought up the reading aspect of this, too, in, in the piece that you wrote here. Uh, you compare what we're doing here in Canada with uh, Finland, as a for instance. And, and it seems as if, you know, it's it's a different sort of schedule there, but the, the children all get to the same spot eventually, don't they? Exactly. And that's exactly it. So learning is not a linear process. So um, certainly there's going to be some foundation skills. You can't do matrix algebra until you can do arithmetic. Um, but we're not asking kids to get to matrix algebra in grade three, right? So we understand that learning is going to be scaffolded. And because of that, um, there, you know, we have time. We have time to get them to where they need to be. Um, I think that we have this erroneous perception that we have to get it done in the, in the time period with prescribed by the ministry these are guidelines these are like how we think we should get there but eventually kids all get there well not all kids but most kids get there 
And uh, again, you, and you draw that comparison with some of the places in the United States where we've seen this as well. How are we doing as far as uh, allocating resources to, to children in situations like this, Tracy? I mean, uh, again, we, we tend to, to not have the idea of the big picture. You've had that uh, ability to be able to look at what's going on in other parts of the world, in the U.K. and Scandinavia and places mm-hmm. like that. How do we stack up? We stack up at the top, at the very top, when it comes to academic achievement. So, uh, you know, our mathematics scores, our reading scores are like the best of the best. So we're doing really well there. Um, the next piece I want to work on, though, is on how we do in terms of social-emotional uh, development and competency, where we're not as good. So that's a whole other segment to talk to you about. <laughs> um, but when it comes to academics, we're doing very well. Um, one of the things, though, and I mentioned this in the piece, so um, I was motivated to have parents just feel a little bit more relaxed and not worry that they, if, you know, if things don't improve and we're not back to our traditional model, that they're going to have to teach their kids again at home or help facilitate that. Um, but one of the things that's a little unfair, well, actually just quite unfair, is that the kids who need it most are the ones who um, tend to fall further behind during things like a crisis like the pandemic or other crisis like um let's say, a tornado or hurricane and the like. So uh, the system, in a sense, is rigged against kids who need it most. Um, but uh, these are the kids that teachers are talking about the most. I speak with educators every day, um, people who are high up and making decisions, and these are the kids they're thinking about the most at this point in time. One of the things that I found reassuring about uh, the uh, the article that you wrote here, Tracy, is uh, is uh, I think it reinforces the the. the the feeling I think a lot of us have about how good our education system is. I remember having a discussion with the education minister, and I'm not going to drag you into the politics of this, uh, but where they were talking about some new initiatives, and they just announced some more yesterday, as a matter of fact. But they said the system is broken. I said, I don't think so. I think our system's pretty darn good. Uh, it could use tweaking always. I mean, you know, it's it's always going to be very malleable like that, but, but we're, we've got a pretty good foundation here, don't we? Uh, we really do. I mean, the data don't lie. So when you look at, um, they have this have standardized tests that they administer in all countries, and Canada always is at the top um, without fail. And it's been th- it's been this way for decades. So um, we're doing very well by our kids academically. And I know there's going to be some listeners there, and they're going to say that's not true. That doesn't um, align with their experience. I'm saying on average, so I'm saying most kids. I'm not saying all kids. There's definitely some failures in the system, um, and there's definitely some kids who are whose needs, academic needs, aren't being met. And, but on average, uh, we're doing very well. Uh, it's uh, in the Global Mail from a couple of days ago. As a matter of fact, I think it's still on their online version, too. It's called Academically Speaking, The Kids Are Going to Be Okay. Tracy, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for this. And uh, listen, when you get around to doing that other paper about the, those other aspects of that, let's get back together again and we'll talk about that, okay? Exactly. And we can be a little bit more critical on that when we talk about social emotional, okay? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Stay safe, okay. Tracy. Thanks again. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Tracy Vancourt, of course, uh, from University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 29 federal lawmakers uh, in the United States, led by New York representatives uh, Blaine Higgins and Elise Stefanik, uh, have sent a letter to Public Safety Minister Bill Blair 
and also the Acting Homeland Security Secretary, uh, Chad Wolf, uh, urging both countries to immediately craft a comprehensive framework for phased reopening of the border. And we know, of course, the Canada-U.S. border is closed to all but essential traffic these days. Commerce is going back and forth, but you aren't and I'm not. And uh, there's an awful lot of people that are getting very frustrated by this. But is this really the right time to be doing something like this? Let's bring Phil Gursky into the conversation. Phil, of course, is president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, Phil, great to have you with us again. I hope you're doing well these days. I'm hot, Bill, as I'm probably sure you are. We need some, <laughs> ra- we need some rain, my friend. It's pretty, pretty dry here in the Ottawa Valley. Farmers are really suffering from the lack of rain. We got about an hour's rain two days ago here, and within five minutes, the ground was hard again. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Oh, so, exactly. yeah, well, we'll see what happens this weekend. Uh, good idea, wrong time. I mean, that's, I think, the way a lot of people are looking at this. I mean, we love our American cousins and friends, but uh, this is really not the time to be opening this border, is it? Well, I, I don't think so either. As you know, noted, Bill, at the outset, you know, the commerce has to go back and forth because our Economies are so integrated. They have been for, for decades. We, we, you know, we are very close trade partners. We're very close partners on many, many fronts. But I think the problem is, and, and you know, we're seeing the news south of the border, and it, it ain't good, Bill, in terms of the number mm-hmm. of new cases of COVID. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. I don't think we need to get into. But I think the fear is, is that if we open the border beyond the absolute necessity, and both governments have recognized the economy is an absolute necessity, and I, and I agree with that. If we open it to more general, you know, two-way traffic, tourist traffic, whatever, we are opening ourselves up to some potential problems here because we have done significantly better on trying to flatten that curve than our American cousins have. So I would agree with you. I think it's a great idea. It's simply the, it's not the right time for it, at least not until we see a significant improvement on their ability to, to uh, manage and to handle their own problem when it comes to COVID. And, and I understand that the ramifications here. I mean, you know, tourism is really taking a hit. And here in southern Ontario, of course, uh, we rely to a great extent uh, on uh, Americans coming across the border to, to visit some of our places here in the summer season. And it's just not going to happen this year. But your, your point is bang on. And the, the risk is just too incredible right now. And I know I talked to somebody the other day on the program, Phil, that, that, uh, that lives in Buffalo in New York, but actually has a, a cottage up in southern Ontario, northern Ontario here. And, of course, they can't go there this year. And I, but the reason why is the same reason why back a couple of months ago, cottagers were telling us don't come up here because we don't want the virus up here. We have to contain this. Uh, and they're not doing a very good job of it. And, and as a matter of fact, a lot of the places where the, the, the numbers are not very encouraging right now are these border states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you make a good point. You know, it's funny you talk about the cottages, Bill, because I have a cottage, too, about, you know, two, about two hours sort of northwest of Ottawa. And, and we respected the restrictions at first because, you know, these small towns have been, you know, mine, mine's in Renfrew County, and, and, you know, these small towns have done well. They haven't had the surging cases that the big cities like Toronto, Hamilton, and Ottawa have had. And yet we're slowly easing up. I've been at my cottage a few times. You know, we were, we're taking precautions, but they're now welcoming the, the regular cottage owners. Can you imagine the influx of American cottage owners across the border, some of whom may be, in fact, be infectious? Uh, you know, the, the, the hospital in the small town near where my cottage is simply couldn't handle a surge in COVID cases. So I, I, I think that it hurts. And, I, and you know, I, I'm born and raised in London, so I, I get the whole tourism thing in southwestern Ontario. But it's simply we have to be very, very careful now. And we're going to take a hit, and the, the hit will go on for a little while longer. But I think it's a hit we have to take to protect ourselves for all the reasons that you and I have been mentioning. The Americans simply haven't got uh, a handle. They're not controlling their problem. And, in fact, it seems to be getting worse, not getting better. This is exactly the wrong time to be opening the border to, to greater uh, two-way traffic. 
And I understand there's going to be some political pressure in a situation like this, but it, you know, the, part of the problem, I, I guess, with some of the spiking we've seen in the states uh, in the last couple of months, especially Phil, is the fact that they've tried to do too much too soon, and they haven't taken all the precautions, and they seem to have thrown caution to the wind, vis-a-vis uh, -vis face masks, uh, social distancing, and things of this nature. I think we've all seen some of the pictures of uh, uh, people on the beaches in places like Michigan and, and Wisconsin and places around the Great Lakes, uh, and you know, we I don't see that going on to the same extent in, in places here in. Ontario, where we are right now, uh, it's 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 frustrating for all of us. I think to you know to batten down the hatches, such as we've had to do since March. But uh, this just seems to be ill-timed, and and I know this is an issue not just here in Ontario; it's right across the country. I know the BC government and others have weighed in on this too, and and, and urging our federal government to simply say, "Look, we just can't do this right now." We because of the pressure it's going to put on our healthcare system. Absolutely, you make a really good point about how. Relatively, as I mentioned earlier, relatively, we've done better than they have. And, you know, chalk it up to the president, chalk it up to this American notion of individual liberties and freedoms. You can't tell me what to do. Don't, you know, don't tread on me, all that kind of stuff. For whatever reason, Bill, and, and there are those that wouldn't, dis, would, wouldn't agree with me, but we seem to be better at listening to the kinds of advice we're getting from the public health officers. And, you know, the governments, too, have done fairly well. I mean, you know, I'm personally not a Doug Ford fan, but i got to tip my hat. He's done fairly well during the, during the crisis, as have most of the premiers and most of the federal officials. And I think Canadians get it, Bill. I think they get that this is an extraordinary time that calls for extraordinary circumstances. And for whatever reason, um, our, our friends south of the border, a lot of them don't get it. And, and, and what's making it worse is that you have senior officials like governors, um, like, you know, other local politicians who are ignoring the vice of scientists, ignoring the vice of, of public health officers and doctors. And as you said it very aptly, they, they opened up far too soon and far too broadly, which is what's accounting for the rise. We're not doing that. And I don't think we want to do that. And that brings us back to the question what we're talking about. We don't want to let in a bunch of people who could, in fact, be infectious to infect us. So, yeah, the hardship's going to go on, Bill, for a while longer, but I just don't see a, a plan B here. If, uh, I think we have to stay the course. I, I, because it, with every passing day, Phil, we just seem to get more information about this, and it's 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 a little daunting when you hear some of this stuff about you know people that are asymptomatic and may not even look like they have the virus, but they're still carrying it. Uh, the U.S. topped three million infections on Wednesday of this week, uh, and and by the way, they were at two million a month ago. It, it took them one month to get another million infections, and uh, that's 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 frustrating to see that that sort of thing is happening right now. And and what I find encouraging about this here is is not only has the uh, the minister minister. Freeland uh, suggested that, well, thanks, but no thanks. We can't really do this right now. The polling I've seen on this, Phil, from right across the country seems to indicate that an overwhelming majority of Canadians agree with the government to keep the border closed until these guys get their stuff together and get their act together when it comes to COVID. Exactly. And like I said, I, I think we get it, Bill. And it, it, it is tough, not just for the tourism industry, but, you know, we have friends in the States. We all have American friends. We, you know, we've been neighbors and friends for the better part, oh, more than two centuries now since we burned their White House. We won't mention that. Um, <laughs> but, you, you know, we are partners in so many ways, and it, and it is difficult for us to say, we love you dearly, but we just don't want to see you just yet. That day will come. I mean, this isn't going to last forever. How long it's going to last? If you knew that, Bill, I'd buy a lottery ticket today because you're going to become a gazillionaire tomorrow. Yep. But the fact is, is that we've got to play our cards very, very carefully here, take a, take a, a sort of a, a temporary economic hit, for, for economic gain down the road, and that's not going to be easy. And I, I, I'd hate to be the guy that runs the, the tourist shop in Leamington, who, on, you know, whose business relies almost exclusively on American visitors. But I just don't see that there is an alternative. And you've got to tighten the belt a little bit longer and, and, and just stay the course and, and see this thing through. 
some of our best friends uh, at our place uh, up in Blue Mountain are Americans, and uh, it's it's hurting me not to see them because we just have a great time every year. Uh, but they simply can't come across the border, and that's and you know we talk all the time back and forth, emailing and phone conversations and everything, and it's very frustrating. But uh, you know they they live in California actually for a good time of the time, and and they understand the reality of the situation because that's one of the states, of course, that's really been hard hit by this whole thing. And uh, it's going to take a while for these guys to, to, to flatten that curve and to do what needs to be done in situations like this. So I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you think, gee, I wish they could simply because you want to see folks. And I've got relatives and friends that I'd love to have over, and I'd love to go staking. I mean, who's traveling anywhere this year? You, you'll go to your place up uh, north of Ottawa, uh, but, you know, nobody's hopping on a plane these days and say, let's go to Europe or let's go to this or let's do that. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very frustrating circumstance right now, which made it rather surprising that these this, these uh, group of U.S. politicians would actually uh, put something forth like this, because I, I just don't understand the rationale other than, hey, we'd kind of like to do that. They don't have the numbers to back it up. No, I, it's almost like they're in denial of reality, Bill. And, I, you know, you made the case about flattening the curve. Not only are they not flattening it, it's skyrocketing. You mentioned going from 2 million to 2 million cases in the, in the, in the course of a month. That should tell the Americans something is badly wrong that their approach to it has not worked. It's not working. They've got to, you know, get their ducks in a row and figure out how to do this because a lot of countries, and, you know, and, and Canada's one of them, we, we, we have done fairly well. It's not perfect, no, but, I mean, here in, in Ottawa, you know, we're down to some days no cases, most days just single-digit cases. So what we're doing is working, and as I said earlier, I think we just stay that course and we don't give in to the pressure. And, you know, as to why governors and, and other people in the U.S. government are are, are Making this request of us, it's politics, Bill. You know, I'm not sure exactly why they're doing it, but there simply is no reasonable grounds from a health perspective to open up the border just now. Let's just be a little more patient. That day will come. That day is not here right now. Phil Gursky, security expert. As always, Phil, thanks so much for this. Always a pleasure talking with you. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.